welcome to Deep North. We are here today in the studio with Iceland Review contributing writer Frank Walter Sands, and we are going to be taking a look at his most recent piece for the magazine, Breaking the Peace, a tale of love and power in medieval Iceland. By the 15th century, in the chaotic and violent times of Joan of Arc, the Hundred Years' War, and the War of Roses, Icelanders had become active participants in the rapidly expanding and highly profitable international trade between the English, German Hans, Dutch, and Norwegian merchants. This trade would become fraught with tension that resulted in deadly skirmishes costing hundreds of lives. In the summer of 1430, Jón Gerigsen was ordained as the Reverend Bishop of Skalholt. The bishop had initially been praised for buying the freedom of at least a dozen Icelandic children who had been bought or kidnapped by English merchants. He was wealthy, well-educated, and even better connected. Jón had the good fortune of having been a childhood friend of the reigning Scandinavian monarch, King Eric who had lobbied for his friend to be reappointed a bishop after losing his previous position as Bishop of Uppsala in Sweden due to an affair with a wealthy widow. Jón was renowned for his lavish dinner parties and his scandalous relations with the opposite sex. In addition to his considerable duties in the church, he had been tasked by the Holy See with correcting the diminishing influence of the Nordic kings in Iceland and reducing or eliminating the influence of the illegal English traders, an effort that would make him extremely unpopular. At first, the upper-class Dane was well-received, but his personal bodyguard of some dozen rough young men soon brought him into disrepute. While supposedly serving as attendants or guards to their employer, the bishop's men, as they were known, had quickly garnered a reputation for their cruel, threatening, and lewd behavior. They were invariably armed with swords and rifles. They spoke no Icelandic, preferring to shout at locals in Danish, and were more often than not inebriated, probably from drinking church wine. In their first year in Iceland, they were accused of numerous offenses, including inappropriate relations with local women, larceny, and all manner of violence against the peasantry. Icelanders, rich and poor, were outraged by these foreign thugs who preyed on the populace with apparent impunity. Even the gentry felt threatened. Tater Gunnlaugsson and Thorvardr Loftsson, both prominent young landowners, were taken prisoner by the bishop's men on unclear and likely flimsy charges by orders of the bishop Jón himself. It was humiliating enough that they were shackled in irons and left in a dark cell. But then the bishop's men also gleefully forced the noblemen to perform menial labor, as if they were mere peasants. After months in captivity, both men somehow managed a daring escape from Skalholt and stealthily made their way north to freedom. At the 1431 Althingi, several chieftains demanded that Bishop Jón's men be brought to justice. Chieftain Ivar Holm Vigfusson of Kirkjubol lobbied vociferously for the lot of them to be proclaimed outlaws, excommunicated by the church, and exiled. 
The chieftains enthusiastically concurred, voting in favor of Ivar's proposal and passing a law condemning the bishop's men at that summer's Althingi. Bishop Jon Gerickson, for his part, did not consider his holy office in Skauholt to be bound in any way by the whims of the lay Icelandic parliament and quietly refused to comply with or even acknowledge the Althingi's ruling. Already by 930, just 60 years after its discovery, Iceland was completely settled and divided among some 400 Norse chieftains who kept tight control of their lands, which were invariably occupied by poor tenant farmers. During this period, there were some 5,000 farms across the country, with a total population of around 40,000. Cities and towns were completely absent, with the exception of the bishoprics of Skauholt in the south and Holer in the north. Without gathering places or even proper villages, opportunities for trade and social events were few and far between. The notable exception was the annual Althingi, or Parliamentary Assembly, which met at Thingvetler for two weeks each summer and attracted thousands of ordinary as well as high-born Icelanders. The Althingi's primary objective was to settle matters of state and serve as a court of law to settle disputes and dole out punishments, including, for a time, executions, beheading for men and drowning for women. By the 13th century, Europe south of Scandinavia had become aware of Iceland's existence, if not its social and political woes. The age of the Sturtlungs was a time of vicious conflict bordering on civil war that only ended in 1262 when, in an effort to bring about stability, Icelandic chieftains voluntarily gave up their independence and swore fealty to the Norwegian crown. This created the Old Covenant, or Gamli Sautmauli, which established a union with the Norwegian monarchy. As early as the mid-14th century, Iceland and the Nordic settlement in neighboring Greenland began to experience shorter growing seasons and colder winters. Lasting hundreds of years until the dawn of the 20th century, this barren period was dubbed the Little Ice Age. To alleviate the dearth of so many necessities, Icelanders began to trade dried codfish for grain and other goods from continental Europe. Around 1415, the North Atlantic changed from Norwegian territory to English. Increasing numbers of Christian fasting days hiked the demand for dried codfish, which was considered by the church to be a legitimate alternative to meat. Easily caught and inexpensively prepared for export, cod rapidly became a vital part of the Icelandic economy. In a time of blossoming trade throughout Northern Europe, Iceland would be a treasured prospect if only reliable trade routes and agreements could be established. The remote island, insulated by the treacherous Arctic seas, offered goods and products that were scarce in the rest of Europe. In addition to bountiful fishing grounds, other prized exports included the tightly woven, warm and resilient wool fabric known as wadmal, 
Vatmaur, animal hides and fleeces, and sulfur, a vital ingredient in the production of gunpowder. As the power of the Norse Empire declined, shipping between Norway and Iceland had diminished to practically nothing, and the connection with the Norwegian-Danish crown was mostly silvered. Icelandic chieftains had little difficulty in making their way through to England and bringing their products to market there, as well as receiving English merchants who made their way to Iceland. Love and Marriage The young captain of the bishop's men, Magnus, found himself quite smitten by a 26-year-old noblewoman, Margret Vigfusdottir, whose younger brother, chieftain Ivar Vigfusson Holm, just happened to be his latest sworn enemy. Ivar and Margret's late father was Vigfus Ivarsson Holm, who had been the highest-ranking representative of the Danish crown in Iceland, bearing the title Hirdsturi. Given the poor reputation of the bishop's men and her family's particular enmity toward them, it is eminently understandable that Margaret would dismiss Magnus's romantic overture without a second thought. The rejection, however, was not taken well by Magnus, who was so enraged that he vowed to exact bloody vengeance on Margaret and her family. Gathering his heavily armed men, Magnus rode south from Skalholt to Ivar's farm at Kirkjubol, where Margaret had been visiting her brother. The bishop's men barricaded all but one of the entrances of the longhouse and set it ablaze, intent on burning the inhabitants alive. As the house filled with smoke, Ivar attempted to exit and reason with the attackers. But no sooner than the door was opened, Captain Magnus ordered his men to fire on him with their rifles. Ivar collapsed, mortally wounded. Margaret realized she had to get out immediately or she would be asphyxiated. Uncovering a hole in the floor, she wriggled into a narrow earthen escape tunnel and eventually scrambled clear of the burning house and her would-be assassins. With the help of neighbors, she fled north to Eyjafjörður. On her arrival, Margaret was warmly greeted by her kin and allies where she wasted no time in angrily denouncing Magnus and the bishop's men, recounting the atrocity they committed which had resulted in her dear brother's demise and the destruction of his property. Then she took everyone by surprise with an unanticipated announcement. The attractive, well-born Margaret swore that she would gladly marry any man who would swear to avenge her brother's murder. The 23-year-old, elegantly dressed Thorvardr Loftsson raised his hand and solemnly proclaimed that he and his friend and former cellmate Tetur considered the task a point of honor and would gladly hunt down and kill Magnus and his lackeys. Thorvardr, Tetur, and their friend Artni Einarsson, known as Dalskekur, gathered a team of fighters and set off for Skauholt to exact revenge and reclaim their honor. Attack on Skauholt On a warm summer's day in July 1433, peasants working the fields near Skauholt spotted a large group of people 
rapidly approaching from the east, near Kvitao River. It was Thorlauk's Messe, a summer day of celebration honoring the patron saint of Iceland, a 12th-century bishop of Skalholt. Pious visitors to the area were nothing unusual, often traveling in numbers for safety. These strangers bearing swords, spears, and clubs were not joyfully worshipping holiday travelers on a pilgrimage to one of Iceland's holiest sites. But grim-faced armed men looking to stir up trouble. The field laborers intuitively recognized the potential danger and duly rushed west to inform the bishop's men of the imminent threat. Suspecting the worst, guards and attendants ensured that the doors and gates to the outlying buildings were all shut tight and locked. In the distance, the crowd of ruffians began to increase their pace until their blasphemous curses and ribald shouts could be heard. No time was wasted securing the bishop, who was locked with several of his attending priests and nearly a dozen of his personal bodyguards inside the venerated cathedral, which at the time was considered a stronghold as well as a sanctuary. Despite the seeming perilousness of the situation, his attendants were taken aback by the bishop's unruffled demeanor in the face of danger. It seems that Jón Gerriksen did not expect any real need for defense, nor escape at all, trusting in the building's substantial security, solid mass, and the good faith of his fellow men. Before long, the aggressive clamor of the angry men pounding their fists on the building could no longer be ignored. Their cries and yelps penetrated the cathedral's massive wooden walls and terrified the priests who were sheltered there. Then, surprisingly, there was a lull in the invaders' din. Perhaps their attack was more bark than bite. Even if the brigands somehow managed to break into the church, Bishop Yon expected that the attackers, being Christian themselves, would certainly respect the sanctity of the bishopric. The bishop remained perfectly calm and confident, partly because he knew his history. In the first half of the 13th century, local chieftains, armed soldiers, waged a merciless battle against Bishop Gudmunter Aurason over control of the bishopric of Holer. Many lives were lost in the struggle, but it was never feared that the bishop's life was in any danger. Moreover, during the long-standing feuds and skirmishes of the age of the Sturtlungs, even if they sometimes had to endure harsh treatment, bishops were invariably granted amnesty. Skalholt, founded in 1056, has been one of the most important historical places in Iceland. As the center of culture, education, and religion, Skalholt served as the de facto capital of Iceland for 750 years. Some 120 people worked and lived at the site, which was the first urban settlement in Iceland. In the 15th century, the cross-shaped wooden cathedral was the country's largest and grandest building. Árnakirkja, as it was known, was a stave or palisade church that had been built in the year 1310. The undeniably beautiful structure that looked as if it could have featured in a Tolkien story 
was 48 meters or 160 feet long and had a surface area of over 700 square meters or 7,500 square feet. Four sets of steeply slanting, slate-colored roofs topped the formidable structure, which was supported by imported Norwegian timber, immense load-bearing cured pine wood columns, 75 centimeters or 30 inches in diameter. Ortnekirke featured a high, elegant tower with a hefty brass bell that regularly summoned the faithful to mass. The lofty interior was richly decorated with fastidiously carved statues, icons, and dramatic paintings mainly featuring the saints and, of course, Jesus and Maria. The dim interior of Ortnekirke was fragrant with incense that pleasantly offset the omnipresent stench of tar which had been regularly and thickly applied in order to waterproof and protect the wooden structure. Upending the church. The rabble outside the cathedral's tarred walls was better organized than the security measures had accounted for. In short order, they had gathered various building materials and began their plan of attack, which without doubt must count as one of the most unusual invasions in Icelandic history. Their leaders set their men to constructing a colossal, if primitive, lever, consisting of a bulky wooden beam set on a massive stone that served as a makeshift fulcrum. One end of the beam was gradually set into place underneath a corner of the far end of the building. Men by the dozen climbed atop the beam's far end while others pulled it downward with ropes. With grunts and shouts of enthusiasm, the massive building began to creak and quake under the power of the lever. Within seconds, one corner of the cathedral was lifted clear of the stone foundation, creating a rift just large enough for the attackers to enter the sacred edifice. Inside, all was quiet and obscure, apart from faint candlelight and the meager sunlight that dimly shone through the cathedral's small, stained-glassed windows. The throng held position at the breach until all their brethren had entered the church. They sternly strode the cathedral's long nave to the altar, before which Jón Gerrigsson stood on a raised platform, clad in full bishop's regalia and surrounded by attendant priests. He met the intruder's eyes with a look of astonishment. As if he were merely carrying out the rites for another mass, the bishop was still holding a consecrated wafer in one hand. Before anything could be said, the bishop's twelve bodyguards were hastily dispatched, while the helpless priest looked on in horror. In the chaos of the attack, a couple of the intruders took hold of Bishop Yon and began to roughly drag him outside, but the desperate priests finally gathered the courage to resist and held on to their bishop as best as they could. In the ensuing confusion, the wafer fell from Yon's finger to the floor in the middle of the nave and crumbled. The priests held on to their master with all their might, struggling against the aggressors all the way to the cathedral's main entrance. Finally, they were forced to realize that their physical resistance was as useless and irrelevant as the church's supposed role as an inviolable sanctuary.
The last they saw of the bishop, he was being stripped of his ornate vestments and carried away in his long undershirt to the jeering and jubilation of the victorious horde. The forlorn bishop, his hands tied in front of him, his head bowed, was marched a few kilometers from Altnekirke Cathedral to the muddy banks of the Brurau River. Still muttering his prayers, a large burlap sack was pulled over the bishop's head. He was forced to lie as the sack was tied together at his feet, enclosing him completely. Finally, a stone was tied to the sack. Then the thoroughly bound bishop and the stone were lifted by several men at each end, swung a few times, and mercilessly jettisoned into the fast-moving river. Later that day, the bishop's corpse was retrieved and mournfully prepared for burial. Jon Gerriksen was later interred under the stone floor of the cathedral, where the wafer had fallen from his hand. Crime left unpunished. There is no evidence that any punishment was ever imposed for the murder of Jon Gerriksen. His murderers chose death by drowning, so they could avoid spilling his blood, which would have been a much graver sin. None of those involved in the attack on Yon and his men seems to have been held accountable for the deaths in any way. There were no revenge killings, declarations, or even compensations for Yon's murder. The weakness and disunity of the Church, in addition to countless rebellions in Nordic countries and the friendship of the Pope, may have spared the assassins from punishment. Public opinion seems to have largely turned against Jon Gerriksen, and there were many chieftains who did not appreciate his disruption of their trade with the English merchants. The death of Bishop Jon Gerriksen would likely not be classified as a normal criminal case, but a political crime that the Church was simply forced to accept. The Bishop of Holar, Englishman John Williamson Craxton, strangely never attempted to use the power of the Church against those who had killed his colleague and defiled the sanctity of Artnekirkia. In the wake of the assassination of Jon Gerriksen, the Bishop of Holar once again became the highest-ranking official in the Icelandic Church. His diary indicates that he remained in Iceland until the middle of the summer of 1434, and strangely, never mentions the Skalholt atrocities. Craxton was appointed Bishop of Skalholt shortly afterwards, cementing his position as the most powerful official in Iceland. Thorvarður and Margaret married three years after Bishop Jón's death in 1436 and lived together at Thorvarður's estate of Mödrvetlir. They were said to be the richest couple in the country at the time. Well, thank you for the riveting narrative, as always, Frank. Thank you. It was a lot of fun to research and write this story. You know, before we kind of get into the background of this story and all the details, um, I can't help but kind of fixate on this image that I feel like it's really powerful in the story of uh, lifting the church with this lever. I mean, like there's something just kind of... I don't know, dreamlike about that somehow. It's just this really wild image. Uh. <laughs> that, that's a very good point. I, I had a 
lot of trouble with this myself. I had to get this from multiple sources, but I would have assumed that they would find a way to use a battering ram to just open the front door. But apparently they had realized that the building itself was set on top of a stone foundation, but not directly attached to it, like modern buildings would be. And I guess with this knowledge, it made it relatively simple for them to lift up the entire building. And this was apparently the most logical and simplest way. Yeah, I mean, with these semi-historical narratives, it it's always tempting to kind of read a little bit of literary symbolism into it. You know, I mean, like, obviously, there's something kind of interesting about this image of the church being separated from its foundation, the foundation of the church somehow being disrupted. I mean, like, there's obviously a very kind of fertile field of symbols there. Um, I mean, what, what what's your sense of the kind of historicity of this incident? I mean, you know, like, like obviously to me, it would kind of make more sense to just use a battering ram or something. Yeah, I'd say apart from the practical aspects of it, what this shows is that there was an underlying tension between the chieftains, um, who were the traditional rulers of the country, and the church, which had decided on its own that it would be the main controller of the country. And at this time, the church had increased its power through um, gaining a lot more land. And this was happening partly because of the Black Death, which had begun in Iceland in the early 15th century, around 1402, 1403. And a lot of people who were dying gave their um, their property to the church in hoping that it would expedite their mm. trip to heaven. And that meant that the church was now a major competitor for power with the chieftains in Iceland. And of course, the two different bishoprics were competing against one another to a certain extent. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of changes that happened in Icelandic society, both during the Black Death, uh, which is uh, like early 15th century, uh, but then, of course, obviously also uh, after the loss of independence uh, under Norway in like 1260, 1262. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the really big changes is the changing role of the church. Uh, something that some people might not know is that in the first centuries of Icelandic history, there really was no such thing as a separate and independent church as its own organization because so many churches were... Uh, on the land of a chieftain already. And the chieftain would own the church as his personal property. Um, many priests actually served essentially as servants uh, on the farm of a chieftain. Uh, there are even kind of interesting stories of priests being treated poorly, almost like slaves, uh, to the point where in a lot of the medieval law codes, there are even very detailed... Um, passages on what to do with runaway priests or fugitive priests, because, I mean, it actually was a problem that priests would essentially escape from their master. Um, and, you know, so the upshot of this is that uh, there was a lot of kind of concentration of wealth around this period as well, because, you know, it's like what happens when the chief owns the church that has begun to tithe, right? And essentially the chiefs uh, can indirectly begin like levying attacks on the peasants that live in their neighborhood um you know so 
it's a really interesting history. And I think that, you know, maybe one of the things that we kind of see in this story is maybe there is some resentment uh, against this office. And maybe there was a certain kind of growing populist sentiment against uh, both like the priestly class and like maybe also just chieftains in general. Mm. I, I think that's a, a very good point. Uh, one of the things I'd like to start with is that you have to ask yourself, how do people end up as priests? Because it's not an easy endeavor in the first place. You have to be literate, and that was something that was in short supply. So you have to be at least educated enough to be able to read. And at this time, you had to know Latin because that was the language language of the church at the time. So there were a lot of actually undereducated priests, and then one asked oneself, well, how did how did one become a priest in the first place? And normally they were the second or third sons. Um, the first son, of course, would get most of the land, and the second might be more of a, a roving militiaman, but the third, very often, they didn't have any particular property or, or purpose for, so they yeah. were sent to the church. And um, one can imagine just being sent to a church isn't necessarily a reason to be enjoying one's job. And <clears throat> as you pointed out, a lot of them were poorly treated, poorly paid, so it made a lot of sense that they would <laughs> try to get away. But on the other level, if we look at it, the chieftains themselves were there from the very beginning, from the year 930. Uh, they were descendants of, of their very lofty ancestors, and they felt very justified in taking as much power as they could not just in their own area, but against their rival chieftains who were their neighbors and uh, fellow Icelanders. And so this created a lot of tension, which you see coming to a boil in the age of the Sturtlungs, which was the 13th century. And that, of course, is what led to the virtual civil war that had the, um, the head of the Sturtlungs um, ask for peace in the form of Norwegian intercession. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Sturtling saga is uh, really interesting as well because, you know, for the most part, I think it's fair to say that the Icelandic sagas are written from a chieftainly perspective. Uh, they kind of reflect the interests of the people that are essentially commissioning these stories to be written. Um, but during the age of the Sturtlings, you have all of this kind of social disruption and there is increasingly, yeah, I mean, like maybe a certain class tension. Um, there are chieftains that are slain in battle, and sometimes the narrative takes a little bit of enjoyment in this, and it kind of might uh, recount in rather gory detail how it happens. Um, actually, you know, speaking of slayings, um, I have to ask, uh, just because this is kind of interesting to me, um, are you aware of any kind of folk tales or legends around the church site after the fact? Because, I mean, like very often when something like this happens, you know, slaying a priest in a church, uh, this often, for instance, might be reason for a haunting or something. Uh, <laughs> like like when, you, when you kind of violate certain norms like the, like the sanctity of the church. Are, are you aware of anything like that? Uh, not, not as such, but I, w I would say that um, I had the good fortune of being involved with a family who was um, not just mildly religious, but also very spiritual. And um, one member was my uh, former mother-in-law, who's since passed. And uh, 
She was well known for being sensitive to uh, spirits or, or ghosts um, who uh, inhabited a certain place. And one of her methods was when she would come to a new place was to identify what kind of spirits or ghosts might be there mm. and then to offer some form of peace. And the first time I witnessed this, I was not sure what to make of it. And then um, it was explained to me that this was all good, that there, this was not some sort of exorcism, but it was just a way of trying to um, make sure that the the spirits or whatever is left of these people who had previously been on the spot would not have any bad feelings or set any kind of curses or omens upon the um, the current people. And I think essentially that's not a bad thing to do. And it's nice to think that people are honoring the the um, the the people, the former residents, and the and the, the things that had transpired on that spot. So in a way, I kind of like it. Well, and to linger on the supernatural aspect, um, there's also a little detail that I found interesting in the narrative, uh, which is before they drowned him, they put the sack over his head. And so, I mean, obviously, uh, on one level, uh, kind of putting someone in his sack with some rocks is a good way to drown them. Uh, but there's also like a kind of interesting little motif in a lot of the sagas where uh, when you go to kill a magician, uh, you don't want them to look at you uh, right before they die because they can curse you like with their gaze and they can essentially give you the evil eye or something. And so I kind of was wondering if there's something a little bit like that because, you know, I mean, a priest obviously has a certain power and you go to kill a priest and, you know, I mean, like maybe there is uh, like, like this, like a certain sense that uh, you don't really want this person looking at you with their last breath. I think that's an excellent point. And uh, it's it's also interesting to me because um, he was, in fact, drowned rather than stabbed, which would have been, or, or he could have been strangled. But that did not happen. And it's sort of as if they could, <coughs> they could therefore claim, well, I mean, the priest drowned, but, I mean, he drowned of his own. And as we know with um, the way women were often executed, they were often uh, um, uh, claimed to be witches, and then they would be drowned. And we know from, from at least uh, English and American um, legend that sometimes a supposed witch could then float to the surface, and yeah. that, would, that would apparently prove that they were in fact guilty. But if they sank to the bottom, it would show that they were innocent. I, I suspect that there may have been some some of that involved in the, in this murder because it is very unusual. The um, I measured the distance from Skullholt to the spot where he was taken, and uh, it was about three kilometers. So you think that's um, that's at least a forty-five minute walk, if not an hour. It's a long time, uh, and seems like going out of one's way. But so it apparently meant something to the people who were involved in this execution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this story also is interesting in that you know it has to be kind of reconstructed to some extent uh and you know uh with this kind of historical narrative there's always maybe a question of the sources mm. um and you mentioned briefly earlier um this matter of the annals and how some of the record keeping kind of uh stopped over this period can you talk a little bit more about that yes the um <clears throat> annals are um 
basically short written records, often written by priests in uh, either Holar or in Skauholt, but also in other places. And um, around the year 1402, one can see the handwriting changing um, from year to year, three times in three successive years, which suggests that um, the previous uh, scribes were maybe killed by the the Black Plague, one doesn't know. Um, in any case, uh, it suddenly stopped around the year 1403, which happens to be the same year that the Black Death uh, arrived in Iceland. Uh, the the uh, written sources that we have are ones that were not the Annals, but were written probably a generation later. And one can imagine that this story was um, was important enough that people were talking about it. And these scribes that wrote this story down later, I have three different sources, more or less concur on what happened, when, and how. And um, there's a lot of details that are left out. But one can infer quite a bit based upon the, the, the things that happened. It's possible that the bishop was protesting more, but we have no record of that. So therefore, uh, I don't put that into the story because it would just simply be what one would guess. But it is normal that a priest especially would be um, muttering his prayers before his execution. <clears throat> and so one of the other uh, kind of invisible influences in the story played by history and the Black Death is, of course, uh, during the Black Death in Iceland, uh, international trade essentially collapses. Uh, this is the period in which Iceland becomes a little bit more isolated. Um, and very often historians will uh, kind of use certain periods of the dominance of certain international trade to kind of make some nice little periods in Icelandic history. Um, and right now, in this period, we're kind of essentially dealing with the transition between the English century and the German century, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe you can give, give us a little bit more context about what were these two centuries and why was that important to this story and the, and the dynamics that were playing out here? I think that's a, a, an excellent point. One of the things we need to remember is that um, in the late Middle Ages, we're talking around the year 1350 onward, there's an, a whole lot of change going on in Europe. This is the Black Death hit England in the early 1350s, and it's estimated by some that up to two-thirds of the entire European population was wiped out. And this was not rich people you know, winning and poor people losing. It actually affected um, all classes of people. And what it meant was that a lot of the rigid forms of hierarchy were beginning to crumble because um, new people, priests, for example, would fill the shoes of uh, more educated um, forebearers, and they were perhaps more open to change. And the same thing was happening with um, political leaders and kings and, and so forth. This was the same time period when cities like Amsterdam and Bruges and London and Bremen, Hamburg were becoming megacities at the time in the sense that they were having many thousands of people where previously they'd been small villages. This is the time period where they had large walls and also shipping technology went from 
what had been single-masted, um, difficult to steer, and very dangerous boats called cogs in English or kocha in Dutch, um, gave way to what we call caravels, which were introduced in the early 14th century by Portuguese and Spanish merchants and quickly became the ship that allowed people to travel relatively safely across the North Atlantic to Iceland and back, which meant that trade could flourish. So you have on one side the Hans or the Hanseatic traders who occupy these very important northern cities of um, continental Europe. And on the other hand, you have the English. Now, the English were not technically part of the Hanseatic League, and they competed directly with them. And during the 14th century, it was the English who took um, hold of the North Atlantic trade in the um, failure of the Norwegians to do so. And it wasn't long after that the Hanseatic League caught up and managed to uh, wrestle Iceland from the English. And this was a long and bloody process. And there were a number of conflicts that were happening right off the coast of Iceland where dozens of ship would be um, destroyed in uh, battles and people were being um, killed right and left. But luckily, this did not involve the Icelanders very much. It would, it's worth noting that at first, the Icelanders were very much in favor of the English. But as the English began to show very poor behavior and even um, lots of death and destruction, that by the later part of the 14th and 15th centuries, the Hanseatic League looked like the saviors and Icelanders made better contacts with them against the English, eventually pushing the English out entirely, more or less, by the middle of the 15th century. Um, a little note, uh, of course, whenever we're dealing with uh, North Atlantic histories like this, there's always a little interesting language stuff that comes up. Um, and one of my favorite notes uh, is, like, you kind of see a microcosm of uh, these relations that Iceland has to the outside world in some of the names for some of the most popular trade goods of this time. And so we briefly uh, heard this term, uh, Wadmal, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, was still in... English usage up until like the 18th, 19th century for yeah. um, this, uh, you know, like 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 essentially um, semi-processed wool, mm -hmm. uh, where it's not kind of like completely spun into yarn, um, but it can be used for like cloth, fabric, etc., um, which you know is obviously related and comes from Icelandic vaðmál. Mm -hmm. um, but then we also see uh, what would have been one of the most uh, important continental goods showing up in Iceland, uh, cotton, which, you know, the Germans obviously would have called Baumwolle, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, surfaces then in Icelandic as Baumut, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tree wool, which <laughs> yeah. I always kind of like that one. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, and so, you know, of course, we're dealing with a soup of uh, North Atlantic traders. We have this kind of uh, international trading aristocracy that's everywhere from the Baltic to Norway to England and, uh, you know, throughout Scandinavia. And one of the kind of shadowy figures that presides over this story is a member of this uh, transatlantic class, uh, John Williamson Craxton. Mm -hmm. um, and he, pl he, 
he plays a kind of interesting role in this story, doesn't he? He certainly does. Uh, it's um, in order to really understand this story, one has to understand that the bishoprics of Iceland were two: one in the north, one in the south. Skalholt was the more powerful of the two; had the bigger cathedral and so forth. But the one in the north was also very important and very powerful, and they had a certain amount of competition. Now, John Williamson Craxton was apparently of some sort of Norse heritage and therefore had some ability, it was understood, with the Icelandic language. He was apparently able to make himself understood and respected in a very short amount of time. This contrasts to Jón Gerriksson, the main person in our story, who was a very well-versed in Greek and Latin, apparently, and although a Dane could speak um, a number of different languages. However, he never thought that it was important to use any kind of Icelandic. And all of his respect came from the fear that was derived from his bodyguards, who apparently took great liberties and um, did not endear themselves to the local population as a result. Craxton, for his part, kept a low profile until Jón Gerriksson's death. And it is often surmised that he was perhaps indirectly involved with uh, the downfall of his colleague, because if it were not the case, one would expect that he would have gone after the perpetrators of the assassination. And there's no sign that that happened. The fact that he was then appointed the Bishop of Skalholt, again, the more powerful of the two bishoprics, shows us that that was something of an advancement. Um, and interestingly, after he took that position over from Jón Gerriksson, the other position, Bishop of Holar, was left vacant, which meant that he had total ecclesiastic control over Iceland. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming in to share the story today, Frank. Thanks a lot. I've really enjoyed it. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's oldest English language publication covering community, culture, and nature. If you enjoyed listening, please consider liking and subscribing. You can also find news and long-form journalism articles on IcelandReview.com. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and the website formerly known as Twitter, X.